This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dean Clark. Hey, Dean. Hey, Andy. How are you doing today? Good, sir. And also All Hugh right. Sign. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. How are you doing? I'm good. Our guest today is Billy Sheehan. Billy's unique and original style of playing bass has resulted in millions of records sold. Readers pull on awards. Boy, it's hard for me to say, apparently. (laughs) Number one hits and sold out shows across the globe. With his history of live performances and recordings with Talis, UFO, David Lee Roth, Mr. Big, Niacin, Steve Vai, The Winery Dogs, and more, Billy has had a huge and undeniable influence on modern bass playing that has spread over the globe and will continue for many years to come. So welcome to Music Bus, Billy Sheehan. Oh, I'll try to live up to that. That was very kind of you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sure. A joy to be with Andy and Dan and with the great Hugh Syme, too. Thank you so much, Hugh, for your contribution, bro. That's fantastic. No, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, Billy, we're glad you're here today, man. Me being a drummer, of course, part of the rhythm section, I can appreciate a great bass player. It's all about bass and drums in my mind, so. Well, yeah. It's the other stuff's just, you know. <laughs> that other thing over there. Yeah, whatever that stuff is. That doesn't really <laughs> matter. So I, I did a little dive into in a couple of your projects. I kind of like to do, I mean, people are really aware of Mr. Big and some of the other things you've done, David Lee Roth, but the the Talus record, that the three tracks that have surfaced that are, like when does the whole record comes out? What about a week, two weeks from now? The twenty third. Twenty third. Okay. First off, I love the idea of when I saw Intermounting Flame. I thought, wait a minute, are they going to cover the McLaughlin? I mean, you know, that's one of the first fusion albums I ever heard in my life, and probably one of yours too, right? But man, what a relentless, you know, prog metal opener way to start a project. Bam, bam, just slapping them around right off the bat. Wake-up call. Uh, it's a good wake-up call, too. Loved it. And that was their ballad. <laughs> Great. That was the slow tune on the record. No. Yeah. Uh, but now it's very cool and crystal clear. I mean, I checked the three out that I could. That's a very cool kind of a updated police kind of vibe, or you could look at it in that direction with the kind of clearer sounding guitars, and but very cool. And uh, man, Don't Try to Stop Me, absolutely furious rocker. And that one's the one I noticed the most of the three, that the way your bass part and the drums propel that tune, as we're supposed to do, is fabulous. And any fan of chops rock, prog rock, you know, that kind of thing will dig this stuff. And I can't wait to hear the rest of the record. It's really oh, cool. Very kind of you. Very kind. Yeah, uh, I saw uh, Billy Cobham play with Dreams before Mahavishnu. Uh, wow. For a dollar fifty at University of Buffalo, Brecker Brothers on horns, and it was an amazing, sure. amazing band. 
Then when he, uh, and the drummer for uh, Talos, uh, Mark Miller, was a huge Billy Cobb fan. The first time I ever heard him was him doing a, uh, a cover of Stratus. Well, sure. We all, we all learned that. Oh, yeah, man, you got to. And uh, so uh, when, uh, there's no song called Inner Money Flame. There's just a, an album. But when I first heard that record, John McLaughlin's uh, uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra, it was, that was one moment in my life where I just said, you know, I'm not sure if I can do this. <laughs> that's some tough, that's some pretty tough stuff on there. So, oh, yeah. By and I got back to work and tried to figure it out. But, but it was just such a landmark record for both me and Mark Miller. It kind of came together as, a, as that song. And again, as you said, that's the ballad of the record. <laughs> that's right. Just talking to Russ Mackey this morning. Great. Um, is that you kind of began your bass playing interests as a jazz? An enthusiast? Yeah, yeah. Well, so early years were a little bit. Of course, it started with the Beatles, with everybody. But I soon, still while I was in uh, a, a freshman in high school, leaned over to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, uh, yeah. a bunch of bands. I was a heavy Zappa fan, uh, bands of that nature. Sonny Rollins, a lot of bebop stuff. And I remember us doing a uh, an assembly at our high school, just me, a sax player, and a drummer. No, no chord instrument playing Miles Davis, Bitches Brew. You just seen the looks we got from the audience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Hmm. Was there a point that you guys were like a seven-piece band? I mean, uh, was before Talos became its distilled version of itself, wasn't it a seven-piece? I was in a horn band right out of high school. Okay. Uh, trumpet, trombone, tenor, alto, uh, three singers up front, guitar, bass, drums, keyboards. So it was a... Uh, wow. My first gig, I made $7. I was wow. going to say you ain't going to make no money in that band. <laughs> was that a dollar a piece or you got seven? I just got seven. That was it. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. What was the name of that band? Opus One. Opus One. Opus so that was one. Brian uh, Famous Buffalo guys came from that band, a drummer named Ted Reinhardt, who went on to quite a, a bit of notoriety locally, and a guitarist named Bruce Picado, also two guys in Buffalo that were very became very famous in the local scene. But we were all in, in the same high school at the same time, and uh, we, we all we all uh, created that band. It was a good way to start. I shared some history, um, though we're 10 years apart with Russ, having lived in St. Catharines and being just north of Buffalo, which is where we all went to drink for the extra two hours and enjoy the laws of New York State. I heard stories of your appearing at After Dark, The Late Show, Uncle Sam, uh, Mickey Rat, all these places that some of which I have seen and been to. So in those early years when you and, and Phil were working together. Yeah, the club scene in Buffalo was was pretty awesome. In Toronto also, we hit Toronto often. Uh, the Gas Works, Larry's Hideaway. Yeah. I played them all. <laughs> it was at Larry's Hideaway where it is because you start on a Monday and go all the way to Saturday, I think. So it was a yeah. Monday night and there was almost nobody there. We started, it was our first gig in Toronto ever. And some tall, skinny guy was in the in the audience. About halfway through the first song, he got up and ran out and then came back. And then the room started to fill up. It was Kim Mitchell. Kim Mitchell, so yes. Called all his buddies. You've got to come down and see this. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I heard a little bit about the ill-fated Kids in Action track, which you guys worked on or wrote together, I guess. Yeah. And it was all. Yeah, that was all Kim. Kim wrote that. But I, we were looking for songs on the David Lee Roth record, and I, I, I presented that. And uh, yeah. I thought we did record it uh, instrumentally, but they, Dave never did a scratch vocal to it. So, Well, Kim, Rush, and the band I played with, which was Ian Thomas's band, all shared the same label. So that's how I kind of got my start with Rush and Kim doing some Max projects. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Canadian, the Toronto scene was always awesome. We loved playing up there. Yeah. Tim's a special guy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I love him. Well, I didn't know about the connection you guys had, to be honest with you. I know your PR um, rep, Amanda, I've known her forever. And so I was like, oh, she you know, she was sending out stuff of, of stuff she's working on. I'm like, that'd be cool for us to talk to Billy. He'd be great to talk to. And so I send around the stuff she sends me, and I send it to Dane. I send it to Hugh. I'm like, I don't know if you heard of these guys or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I, I did the cover. <laughs> you know, one of those. I'm like, oh. I thought okay. that looked familiar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stylistically. <laughs> but uh, uh, speaking of, let, let's talk about that record a little bit more. I know we talked about it at the top of those three tunes, but... If you can talk a little bit about the history of that record, and then let's talk about the cover, too, because the cover is super awesome, too. So. Well, uh, Talos went through many incarnations, about eight, I believe. We call this version two, but it's really about version eight or nine. Uh, and that's not uncommon. Uh, you, as I'm sure you know, everybody, back until, until you made it and got the record there and really established, and everybody's photo was on the album, anything can happen with who comes and who goes. So... Uh, uh, we, uh, and that particular version, it was a good time for music because uh, that mid-80s bump of enthusiasm and interest uh, in hard rock and heavy metal, we kind of just left the new wave uh, punk rock, Police, U2, Blondie, bands like that, and suddenly we're coming into a uh, Priest and Accept and bands of that nature. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good time for, for music. We... Uh, Wanted, we had two choices when we made the record. Do we uh, bring everything up to date and polish it up and make it all slick and in the new digital world? Or do we go back there and play it the way we used to when, when, we, when we could? And uh, so we obviously decided to do that. And uh, Hugh brilliantly came up with the, with the time machine because I kept saying, it's like we got in a time machine and went back to 1985. And, and that's that's what he did. I don't, I don't even think we, we we directly spoke about that particular connection, but uh, he uh, somehow read read our minds or, or implanted his thought into ours. Well, <laughs> Russ came up with the connection between the 1984 title for Van Halen and thought it would be clever to have 1985 as the, 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 the not, as it was also the time you were migrating from Talos into the David Lee Roth project. So I think that had a lot to do with where that title came from. Yes. Uh, but the quintessential icon from that era was certainly the DeLorean. And ironically, they just came out with a new DeLorean, I heard. Did they really? Oh, Unbelievable. Really? Huh. I just, somebody I was doing an interview the other day, you know, they got a new DeLorean out. I had no idea. Uh, like like we planned it. We should just say we did plan it that way. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. You influenced that up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So we uh, just did it together on Mark Miller, the infamous uh, Talos drummer for many reasons I could go into. Uh, he, he's a, just a wonderful guy and an amazing player. And uh, he built his own house from, he designed it and he's an architect and a craftsman. And he's just a, wow. a Renaissance man. So we did it, we recorded it in his living room and he basically built his drum kit too. I mean, not totally from scratch, but really, he needed this bar to mount his rototoms, but all he had was a straight bar. So he actually went out in the back on a tree and bent the bar and drilled the holes and created his own. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so he's a, that, that generation, uh, I, I'm older than Mark, so it applies to mine as well. But, you know, we kind of, when it came to gear, we took things into our own hands a lot of times. So Mark certainly did. We sat down there in his drummer and just laid the tracks down and, uh, Bill did the vocals from Toronto with Russ McKay, as uh, you mentioned already. And uh, uh, there we have it. So we, 
we had our record. We had about maybe maybe 15 or 18 songs to choose from, and we chose the ones that are on the record. And they're all from that era, other than one new song by Phil Black and Blue. Uh, Russ was telling me about how you used the plug-in audio movers and Zoom to kind of actually hear almost in real time what was being achieved in Blue Sound up in Toronto. It was quite amazing because I'd be here on Zoom with a window for Phil, a window for Russ, and I'd be there. We'd be talking through the vocal, the vocal uh, arrangement and uh, all the little fine points. And then on my computer to my right, your left, uh, we would have audio movers output from the recording console. And it was in real time. I don't know how. That's pretty amazing. I can't. I still don't know how they do it. So it was quite, uh, uh, Russ was quite brilliant at uh, setting all that up and making it happen, taking a lot of disparate parts and put them all into one because during the pandemic, you had to, different things got overdubbed here and there. So yeah. it, Sure. It would be a mess, but he managed to, to uh, keep everything very, very together. Just digging into your past and how you were inspired, it felt like your first challenge was when you heard Paul Samuel Smith reveal how bass can be su substantially more than just the bottom end, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, he was a huge influence. And in the Yardbirds, he was doing a call and response with Jeff Beck. Mm -hmm. Jeff Beck would play a lick and he'd answer it. And it was a, it was a, I, I liken it to, one of the records that was a big part of my life was a uh, Johann Sebastian Bach box set called the Well-Tempered Clavier. It was a box with three LPs in it, three vinyl, six sides, seven volumes, total of 42 sides of one guy playing the harpsichord. Wow. wow. So, and you began to hear how that left hand, which would be analogous to the bass, yeah. Right hand would, would be the lead singer and guitarist and all the uh, melodies. Right. And, and those things uh, began, began to do uh, for me to perceive how, how, what, how that's related to this. Because you have the bass has got to hold things together. It's got to spell out the chord. It's got to spell out the key. And Paul Samuel Smith on the uh, song called Lost Woman. We heard that. Oh, yeah. Up. It was like Ingve of bass back in 1967. Yeah, man, that's a smoking track. Listening to your solo at the Budokan, which was, again, one of the first times I was exposed to you as a musician, um, especially as an exposed soloist, I, th I immediately thought, how does someone with that amount of stamina and dexterity and accuracy play Steve Vai and Jeff Beck on a bass? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> well, very kind of you. I was just looked at it as a musical instrument and you know you'd hear I'd hear notes on on a tenor sax or a piano or or a guitar or anything else and I know they're out here somewhere so there's got to be a way to do it is that a five string bass or six string bass you got there they're all fours except for one I got a one six string bass that I did just take my heart by Mr. Big was not on that bass but everything is four string yeah you get used to this thing with this curve in your hand yeah and a violin with its bow and the arc of the bow and a stand sure. that arc. And for me, that's a thing. And the five string flattens that out. Six string flattens it out even more. If that's what you're used to, that's cool. But I don't know. I don't know, Hugh, if you ever heard of a bass player named uh, Niels Henning Orsted Pedersen. No. He's a D Danish guy and he plays a stand up bass like it's a ukulele. And he is probably the greatest bass player ever. I mean, he's, he was doing stuff as a teenager that uh, people still haven't gotten close to. So, Billy, I got one question. Yes, sir. Do you play upright at all? 
A tiny bit. Yeah, I got a fretless uh, attitude bass. They made this in most uh, every iteration. There's a 12 string. There's a fretless. There's a an eight string. There's a uh, uh, extra long scale version of it. So okay. uh, we've gone through uh, many uh, versions of the <laughs> of the attitude. So it helps me sure. to, to get in there. But uh, yeah, a dear friend of mine got me a, a stand up, uh, and uh, it's when I was young. My one of my very first gigs I did was on a stand up bass. And boy, that'll separate the boys from the men. Oh, right, yeah. About halfway through that game, oh my God. <laughs> your arms. It takes a different chop, doesn't it? Arms yeah. fall asleep. So hold your arm like that and pluck those things. Yeah. I'll bet, man. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Separates so, the men from the boys. So we talked about 1985 in regards to Talos, obviously, but take us back for a minute, if you will, to 1985 in your world. I mean, that must have just been a mind blow, right? That whole experience. We were we were struggling in Talos, of course, when we knew at the end we did get signed. We got a we got got signed to a booking agent. We got signed to a label. But right on that very same week that those two deals came in, I got the call from David Lee Roth's office, and uh, that was I had to make a decision at that point. And I always said, "There's, there's no band I'd leave Talos for, except for Van Halen." Right, right. It's David Lee Roth. They go, "That's close enough." Yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> yeah. Now, how did that Gotta referral go. come about? Like, who made who made who connected you with Dave? Did you know him prior, or did what happened? Oh, uh, I spoke with him because I went to see him a lot, and then after we toured with him, matter of fact, in Toronto, one of their shows in Toronto, I drove up there to see them because the, I knew the crew guys and stuff, so I'd show up there, come on back, and you know, put me in the dressing room and say hi to everybody. Uh, so a nice bunch of people, all of them. Uh, so uh, uh, he knew me from that, and uh, I didn't know, but he uh, had just quit the band. Hmm. And uh, unknown to me, when I first got to L.A., I had a a day off, which I was going to meet with him because we already made arranged that. And I called unknown, just I called Ed Van Halen and said, Hey, Ed, I'm playing in town with Ling Bay. You want to come down to the show? He goes, oh, I'm kind of busy. And I said, oh, Let's go. I'm going to have a meeting with Dave tomorrow. He goes, You're what? You're what? And I, go, and I, said, I realized, Oh, I shut his shit, got my mouth shut. Whoops. And so he goes, Oh, man, when you get back from we don't the meeting, call me. I want to find out what's going to, what's going down. He goes, We think Dave's going to pull an Ozzy Osbourne, is how he, uh, Described a meeting. Ah. Ozzy left Black Sabbath, got Randy Rose, and all that, you know, so that. Right, right, right. So after I got done with the meeting yeah. with Dave, where he, you know, asked me, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll go out, we'll find a guitar player, we'll find a drummer, and we'll start a band. I said, okay, I'm in. Uh, uh, when I when I got back, I had to make a decision do I, do I stiff Ed and not call him back or or blow it with Dave by calling back? And, and, and so I just said, let me just keep my big mouth shut mm. and keep on going. So the whole Talos tour was about. A full month of about 30 shows with uh, Ingve. I couldn't say anything to anybody, even though I huh. we're up on stage every night. I'm looking at everybody. We're having a blast. Going, Sorry, you guys. I got to oh, man, duty yeah. calls. It was a, a tough call to make because I love those guys. And, and we uh, we struggled a lot in that band all, with all the members that were in uh, uh, Talos. So it was, a, it was a tough call to make. But in, in the end, I think it was inevitable. Yeah, yeah got to do what you got to do sometimes you know? well yeah. you guys put together you and dave put together an incredible band i mean that was those records are fantastic and have stood the test of time there's no doubt about it great album cover too <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. you have a smile yeah uh dave on the front we were there for most of that photo shoot but then when they brought the girl in the back the naked girl to dance they made us leave for that we couldn't stand really? oh man wow. come on now jeez that's a shame. <laughs> that wasn't nice. I was hoping to hear some dirt on that, but oh well. Now, we talked to Paul Gilbert last year and had a great conversation with him. Actually, he had put out a Christmas record, and he was playing that uh, as we were talking to him. 
but the whole Mr. Big stuff, and you know, it's funny when, when you think back about like movies, like Singles, you know, where Matt Dillon's character says we're big in Belgium or whatever. But I, whenever I think of rock in Japan, I mean, obviously I think of Cheap Trick and Budokan, but I think of Mr. Big. I mean, you guys are so huge in Japan. What what happened? I mean, what happened there specifically? Do you know? Was there a time where you guys just, just blew up? Was it a song? What? Because you guys are so big there. I can speculate on it. I'm not sure if I'm exactly correct, but mm -hmm. uh, the Japanese are, they're very tight. I, I used to say to people, open your video uh, uh, player and look at, at the circuitry inside. You see that? That's how tight they are. It's just like everything is a perfect spot and it's just brilliantly designed mm -hmm. and innovative uh, 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 electronics and, and their cars were incredible. So the Japanese are quite an amazing culture. And I was so uh, thankful that we got an opportunity to play there so much and and absorb that uh, whole other world my first time there was like being on another planet you know because there's you're used to all the lettering you know being our our alphabet you know but, but i'm not sure what that means you know or that you know the sign you know is a, is a, they do a whole different world and uh, but they were so nice and so accommodating so when we got there with mr big we got there early stayed late shook every hand kissed every baby signed every autograph answered every snail mail uh, fan letter. The fans would give uh, fan letters to our crew guys, and we'd end up with a pile. I mean, about a foot high of, uh, <laughs> and they would include in the envelope their return envelope stamped with an address <laughs> and pen and paper for you to write back oh, to them. So wow. They, they made it easy. Right. So we, we really, uh, they went to such great effort to uh, reach out to us. We reached back. And uh, we, a lot of bands would go to Japan and think, ah, it's Japan. We can just kind of screw off and they're, they're, whatever we do, they're going to love it. It's not true. And they never got asked back again. So we got up there. We thought, as, as we're going to treat this like everybody else, and whether it's Italy, Germany, Los Angeles, New York, let's go up there and do our best, you know, really hit it hard. And we did. And it just caught, struck a nerve there with them. Hmm. Well, what years did this happen in? This was uh, 88, 89. Okay. Yeah. But it never really stopped. I mean, Mr. Big is still Yeah, we do uh, great there. A big name in Japan. Always has been. Not that you're not everywhere else, but they're huge in Japan. Yeah, sometimes the cliche of, of big in Japan kind of shadows over us, but in fact, we uh and uh, I think on our uh on our second record, we did uh, um uh was Santos Beach right outside of Sao Paulo. Brazil, a hundred thousand people on the beach. Wow! Yeah, insane. And then we, uh, at one point, there were four Mr. Big copy bands in Italy, uh -huh. and uh, we. Uh, we did, really? I get more email from Indonesia than anywhere else. It's, really? Wait a minute. So we, we, when you have, we had a hit record, which is by the grace of uh, all the gods combined. Uh, it was an amazing thing. So we ended up playing all over the place, and in, in Thailand, and Malaysia, the Philippines, Korea. Indonesia, Singapore, all those places. Uh, so, uh, and all over Europe. So we, we did really well internationally, which helped us out because when the rock thing faded and Nirvana and grunge came in. Yeah. In Japan, they didn't get grunge. They're like, why, why is everybody wearing these old clothes? <laughs> but we were still going strong. Yeah, that's sure. good though. Yeah. Yep. And then the winery dogs with, with, with Mike Portnoy. I mean, it appears to me, obviously, you're a, you know, you're one of the best and best well-known bass players that there is. Do you 
do you are you always like seeking out new challenges for bands? It seems like you end up partnering with these other amazing musicians, of course. But you know, what what do you look for when you're going into a new band? I mean, specifically. Well, it's usually at this point people that I know or know of, which okay. I'm, I'm happy to say, because then you know, the, the music biz uh, has a way of weeding out the difficult people. Mm-hmm. Some of them still do rise to the top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mostly they get weeded out. So most people in the biz now that I know are solid citizens. They're good people. There's no problems. They know how to get out, get out there on time, do the show. So all those things that you might have had a problem with in the past uh, uh, are, are pretty uncommon these days, I think. And thankfully, a lot of the drug and alcohol problems, you don't see that as much it, from from my point of view, anyway, uh, as as we used to, thankfully, for people's health and and a long life. But uh, I don't know. I just uh, I'm basically a I just uh, played in a rock band. I like to sing and play. And uh, Richie Kotzen was just such an incredible uh, mm-hmm. performer. Uh, Mike Portnoy on drums is just a really a great drummer. Uh, I, I I've been lucky to play with some really fantastic drummers through throughout. And my- a great guy too. I I, I work with Mike in the early days of the dream theater projects yes he was my go-to guy we were the ones that would talk about concept and so on so yeah he was he was pretty cool yeah one great thing about him is that he's usually taking care of all that stuff so somebody's got to take care of it it's a lot of work so he does it and he's a he's a tireless uh, uh, uh contributor to any band that he's in so that's really cool so uh, yeah the winery dogs has been a, a great experience uh plus there's only three guys which makes it way easier you add even just a fourth guy and it's yeah. almost twice as much work a fifth guy forget it as, as yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you guys are you make a lot of noise for three guys too mm-hmm. yeah the hot streak record yeah which was the that was the last one that you guys put out wasn't it maybe exactly. five or six years ago i listened to that this morning and you know it didn't surprise me that it was the epitome of progressive slash hard rock slash metal that still kind of retains commercial sensibilities and absolutely virtuoso performing. Thank you. But what really surprised me, I mean, you had, I'm thinking of like Oblivion, Hot Streak, Ghost Town. I mean, just furious examples of, uh, of great playing. And then surprisingly, here's what really surprised me, was a couple of tunes that were kind of way out of character, I thought, for the band, but still worked really well. The R&B tune, Think It Over, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect you guys to do that. I mean, it had a Wurlitzer kind of thing. It was kind yeah. of a funk groove. That's really a cool tune. It was one of my favorite ones. I thought. Oh, and, I'm glad to hear. And the brush tune. Yeah. Uh, with the acoustic guitar, fire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, I think all of us probably come from a generation where there was a much broader spectrum of what we're listening to. Yeah. Uh, one one thing I, I like to try to give advice to younger players and younger folks is to, to push those those blinders out a little bit and look at more things because what all of us when we grew up you know on the radio they'd play a real wide i remember back in the 60s on the radio here oh no question joni mitchell and hendrix on a classical piece and then a little miles davis and then back to cat stevens and you know all kinds of things uh uh so all of us myself more than mike and richie come from that area Arrow, but Mike and Richie also were affected by it as well. And Richie's a big fan of uh, a lot of different kinds of music. Uh, Prince was a big influence on him as well. And Prince had that interesting, I believe, across spectrum. He's playing, you know. Yeah, dude. Yeah, no question. Yeah, playing electric guitar, 
and playing bass and he's a you know he was really aware of music and the quality and and uh uh talent of the musicians he surrounded him with himself with so uh that that part come from richie and mike's background of course is goes to everything uh we we sit down sometimes and compare notes to some of the records we loved and uh we have a lot in common. We're talking about the uh, Procol Harum with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. Oh, that's one of my favorite records. Gotta love that, man. B.J. Wilson, what a great drummer. Wow. He was a killer. Yeah. So we, we having those things, uh, putting a record together, uh, we're, we're less fearful of uh, making a left turn because we, we've li yeah. listened to and love music that might, might be down that road. Sure. When FM radio was FM radio and it had that eclectic, spectrum like you said Joni Mitchell Cat Stevens Elton John Led Zeppelin it didn't care about genre it just cared about quality and it just cared about you know having the catalog be listened to you know especially Chum FM it was pretty brilliant um it had a, a few really good DJs that just understood music and how to sync a perform you know a, a show you know I agree and we got Chum FM in Buffalo and in Rochester and you guys got our stations too so the good thing about that is a lot of the uh, uh, street-level Canadian bands, we hear ads for them, and uh, uh, Canada has a Canadian content law. Yeah, yeah. They had to pay, play Canadian artists, so it got their records played. We heard it in Buffalo, and as it, uh, all the bands, Coney Hatch. Oh, yeah. Gatto. Canadian content law, I never heard of that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've never heard of that either. Yeah. So they have to play so many Canadian artists per capita for, yep. for yeah. songs that they play, period. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, Interesting. And, uh, and you, uh, in order to qualify that, you had to be Canadian. Uh, there's a couple points. You had to be from Canada, or the songwriting song had to be from a Canadian, or uh, it was recorded in Canada, or something. There's a couple of points. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why we did sink your teeth into that in in Canada, hoping to get that Canadian content thing at least get some airplay. Right. So I don't know. I don't remember how that ever worked out. I was gonna say, did it work? That's a good ploy, though. Yeah, good <laughs> I idea. See, I can sure. see getting in the car, driving over a bridge, writing a song. Here you go, <laughs> go home. <laughs> who I listen to now with admiration and, and inspiration? Who, who who are your bassists? Your go-to bassists? It, it wasn't always bassists. Uh, it's it a lot to do with drummers. Uh, like I said earlier. It's, that's what I listen to. It's what I key off of. So during the pandemic, uh, we couldn't go anywhere. So uh, people started emailing me tracks to do, to play their their on their songs from all over the place. And it wasn't just rock. I mean, it was the broadest array of styles you could imagine, from electronic dance music uh, to uh, hardcore hayseed country to death metal to uh, classical. You name it. And it was, and the key element was always that. What's that drummer doing? What's he doing? Yeah, yeah, man. A lot of times we'd have to write back. Look, you got to send the drum tracks separate so we can really hear what they're doing and weave this thing in. So as much as I love great players on any instrument, bass, of course. I remember not too long ago, maybe about ten or twelve years, I got turned onto Art Tatum. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah, killer player. It's inhuman. It's just unbelievable how amazing the guy was. And uh, I was a big Oscar Peterson fan. He was a Torontonian, wasn't he? Yeah, he's really, I mean, I like. Uh, he's ridiculous. So technical. The other guy that blows my mind is is uh, Keith Jarrett. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the guy with three hands. I just don't know how he. Pretty, pretty mind book. So, so uh, I t try to take for a lot of instruments. And of mm -hmm. course, uh, lining that up with the drum, you automatically get a bass because we're the link between 
with time. But when your drummer's playing time, that's cool. But what key are we in? Yeah, uh, right. And then it goes from there. You build up, put the frosting on the cake at that point. So, but I, I do listen probably more to drummers uh, these days than uh, than bass players. But there's a lot of incredible talent out there. Well, you start to scroll through Instagram or whatever in the feeds and see guys playing. Pretty amazing. My only concern for them is that not a lot of them are up on stage playing. And I think a lot of your seasoning as a player comes from time spent. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. You have to take the time. You got to go out and play. Exactly right. You know, you can't play along with one Led Zeppelin track all you know for a month and then put that on YouTube and that's not playing a gig. I'm sorry. You got to <laughs> play thirty songs. You know, and you got to go one to the other. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's a, a important point. But then again. It's a new world. It's a new thing that may be, you know, 20 years from now, they're going, oh, you got to put all you got to play on YouTube for a whole bunch of time to, to before you. So well, yeah, could we, be. We, we have to acknowledge our, our I have to acknowledge I won't I won't put this on you guys. I, I have to acknowledge my grumpy old man uh, uh, age. So <laughs> uh, I'm right with you, brother. <laughs> so what's next for you? Well, uh, they're booking winery dog shows like uh, mad for next year. Right. Uh, we're thinking of possibly uh, looking into doing some Mr. Big shows. Mm. Uh, we lost our drummer, Pat, sadly. He was a, just an incredible guy and an amazing drummer. We had a wonderful drummer fill in for him, Matt Starr. He was a great, great, great player. But we needed a, a guy with a little bit higher range because we had a harmony between Pat, myself, and Paul Gilbert that we need in order to make those songs work. So right. we're looking for a drummer with a higher voice. And uh, a couple guys we're, we're, we're talking to. So we, we may possibly do it. At first, we didn't want to do it at all because without Pat, it was just not the same. I know yeah. a lot of bands go out and, you know, when they lose a guy and they replace him and then they replace another guy and there's not too many original guys left in the band and you got to do what you got to do. But we wanted to kind of avoid that a little bit just as the way we felt about it. So I think sure. enough time has passed. We may, we may get an opportunity to go out and play again. I would love to work with Eric and Paul and another drummer. That's right. Yeah. Some fan bases are too sensitive to even accept, you know, it's like a sacrilegious thing to try and regroup with that missing member. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know, I know, I see uh, Getty and Alex have gone out and do some, done some shows with other players recently. Mm -hmm. Wonderful to see them playing again, but I agree. There's some big shoes to fill. Mm. Yeah. And even yeah, if good. the shoes could be, you know, effectively filled, I don't think the fans. They're just too possessive and protective of that triumvirate as they were. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Understandably so. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Go out and play and call it something else. <laughs> yeah. You know, go out and play, and you yeah. know, Getty can focus on bass and and keyboards. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you guys toured with Rush at some point, didn't you? Exactly what I was going to bring up. We we did an opening slot on the Presto tour. I think the whole tour, and then we did a lot more on Roll the Bones. And uh, you will back me up on this, I believe. Uh, what a fine group of people. I mean, just Unbelievable. Wonderful. Yeah, lovely. So kind to us and uh, so generous. And they were just awesome every night. When I was younger, I have to admit, at my age group, Rush kind of came along after the fact. My prog thing was King Crimson Genesis with Peter Gabriel. Uh, but uh, And so I really got to know the band watching them on, on those two tours. And uh, what a... I just loved it. They were just so great, and and they were so kind to us, and they were just amazing every night. The sound was great, 
The production was fantastic. They ran a tight ship, but they were just sweet, nice, generous, wonderful guys. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I felt grateful and blessed to have been a part of that journey and, and I, their loyalty to. And I like to think I earned my keep, but at the same time, that loyalty that they have towards everybody, from their crew to their lighting people, to you know, and, and their trust too. I mean, I I took some chances which seemed to work out well, but I was pretty indulgent, as were they. You got to have that. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Color outside the lines. Now, I will say that when I saw Lean into it for the first time, it's not off. I mean, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Storm, and I, I've always admired his work with hypnosis. But when I saw Lean into it, I thought, yeah, I'm jealous. <laughs> that's a really good cover. <laughs> I saw Bump Ahead, you know, and I thought, well, that's this guy thinks a lot like me when I saw uh, Hey Man. You know, it's just like it's beautifully whimsical and glib, but intelligent glib, you know. I'm so glad to hear you say that. So you're jealous, Hugh. Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. We uh, we would, uh, our drummer, Pat, would go through photo libraries of uh, photos you could see. And he'd pick out like eight or ten things that are whatever. Like I remember when he showed us the guy with his uh, head coming out of the uh, manhole. Yeah. And went bump, bump ahead. Well, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so Same thing with, uh, hey, man. He said, what do you think of this? I go, hey, man. <laughs> yeah. So we ended up putting Suffragette City and the encore for that tour because they say, hey, man. Oh, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Great. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Nice. But, uh, lean yeah. into it. If you'll allow me uh, to indulge myself a little bit, I apologize. But uh, we, uh, we had this kind of little co-manager guy and he just was not together at all. And we always had to clean up after him and put out fires. And uh, it was his job to get us a, 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 some artwork for Lean Into It. Mm-hmm. Which we would have called you, you. Uh, but, and, and so he came back. And he had a, they hired a photographer to take a photo of a like some model pushing down the dynamite plunger, but she's she's in like two inch heels with a, like a nineteen fifties cut bathing suit. So it wasn't, yeah. you know, it was just awful. <laughs> <laughs> and we're uh, sitting around a table with Atlantic Records people in the whole band, and we're gonna see the here's the new cover, and I'm like, we're like, oh my god, this will this will destroy us. And I'm saying. And I, I remember I, I said anything will be would be better than this. And on the wall was that photo. Oh, good, yeah. Nice. I said, oh, that would even be a better cover. So okay, oh, really? the cover. Well, that's what you used. Wow, that's a trip. And there you go. <laughs> anything <laughs> better than that? They are great covers. I mean, they oh, are. Uh, yeah, they are. Sure. That's all right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real what treat. A pleasure. What a pleasure. Yeah, Billy. Yeah. Nice chatting, man. Nice to meet you, Mr. Sheehan. Uh, my pleasure, and uh, we'll do it in person. Maybe get together with Russ and have a few beers. And uh, there's plenty, there's plenty more stories to be told. <laughs> I look forward to it. Be great. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Hugh, wonderful to meet you, sir. You too. And to uh, Andy and Dane, thank you very much, and, uh, and thank you for all the drummer questions too. That's uh, we speak the same language. Yes, we do. <laughs> right on. Awesome. All the best. Thank you. Thank you all. Cheers, man. Right on. Yeah.